Well, in his book, Integrity, Dr. Henry Cloud tells a story about a dog food company that hit hard times. Sales were bad and not getting better, and the CEO had begun the company and was very attached to its performance. And when things weren't going his way, he wasn't very happy at all. Being the decisive type that he was, he decided to take action, and so he fired the outside advertising firm that did all of the national campaigns. The company geared up for a new branding push, new packaging, a new look, and even new model on the bag. And certainly great things were in store for this company, but when the numbers came in, they were just about the same. And the CEO was more angry. Another inept advertising firm had failed him. What to do? Get rid of them and find me a good one this time, he ordered his team. I don't want any more losers. We're spending way too much money in advertising to let this happen again. So they moved quickly, and they hired the best and the brightest, and they launched with great expectations. And certainly, this one would do the trick. New displays in retail spaces, samples left in pet stores and on the doorsteps, treats given out at parks where people walked their dogs. No stone was left unturned in the dog world. They were going to know about this food. No gains came in, though. The first quarter returns came in with a new thrust. Sales were the same. The CEO made another move, this time more drastic. He fired his marketing department and replaced them with the best and the brightest there. Now finally, all incompetence was eliminated. No more loses inside or outside the company. A new start, and the new team put together this new plan and executed it viciously. And when the numbers came in, no one was happy. They were basically the same as they had been for the previous years. No gains at all. The CEO called a meeting, and he wanted to know who was responsible for all of this ineptness. Someone was not doing his job, he said, and he wanted to know who that was. Find him and get me someone who can make this work was his message. And right in the middle of the meeting, he was breaking down delivery schedules and supply chains, space allocation and stores, demographics, the pricing of advertising focus and other execution issues, and a young, somewhat quiet, non-assuming little manager raised his hand and he said, Sir, may I say something? Yes, Jones, what is it? The CEO inquired, a little thrown off by this interruption. He said, Sir... The dogs don't like the food. <laughs> and the room was quiet for what seemed like a very long time. And the CEO just looked at the man. Now the question Henry Cloud asks is, what if the reality is that your marketing might be the best in the world, but your dog food is horrible? Better marketing only gets you more disappointed dogs and actually puts you further behind than if you sold less because your brand is getting trashed. They have tried you and moved on. Much better to know that your food tastes bad to Fido and fix that before you get out into the world. Then you're standing in and on reality, which is the only place that good things happen. Missing reality like that can have absolutely disastrous consequences in the areas we care about the most, especially 
in the church. There is a saying that is difficult to hear but very wise to embrace, and here it is. Reality is always your friend. Reality is always your friend. Why? Because anything short of reality is a fantasy. Everything else is fantasy. As Henry Cloud says, we must be in touch with what is, not with what we wish things were or think things should be or are led to believe by others to believe that they are. The only thing that is going to be real in the end is what is, right? And in the case of Christ's church, that's where soul transformation is going to be made and love is going to be found. In an online issue of Breakpoint, we're provided with an immense amount of food for thought on the character of an authentic Christian faith. It begins like this. We humans have an infinite capacity for self-justification, which is why it's pretty good to get a reality check and find out how others see us. After all, only your closest friends tell you if you have bad breath, right? That is a service David Kinneman, president of Barna Polling, and Gabe Lyons have performed for us with their book, Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. Kinsman and Lyons spent three years polling young, unchurched Americans to find out what they thought about Christianity, and millions of young people, they discovered, see us as judgmental, hypocritical, anti-homosexual, and too political insensitive and boring. Ouch. Your immediate reaction, like mine, is that this characterization is grossly unfair. Why don't these folks realize all the good things we do as the church, like helping prisoners or Africans with AIDS or whatever it may be? The answer is that, fairly or not, hostile press characterizations of us as judgmental, homophobic bigots have stuck. But this is only half the answer. A shocking 50% of respondents say that they don't base their negative views on marketing. They base it on personal contact with Christians. That's scary. As the authors write, many of those outside Christianity reject Jesus because they feel rejected by Christians. Let's be honest. Sometimes we do come across as judgmental, anti-homosexual, and excessively politicized. And all too often when others misrepresent Christianity, we do not know enough about our own doctrines to explain the truth to them. It's true, all across America, we draw millions into our churches on Sunday mornings. But let's ask the hard question. Are we drawing them in by offering therapeutic services to make them feel better, but not actually be better? Kinman and Lyons have brought a harsh reality to the church at large. The importance of spiritual authenticity exhibited by those who declare themselves to be followers of Jesus. That's what they bring to the table. 
And the power of the gospel to change lives demands it from us because people want something that's real. They, want some, they need something that's true. Fact is, friends, the church doesn't need better marketing strategies. It needs a better product. Authentic followers of Christ. People in society are dying for lack of a true Christianity. One that's credible, one that's unhypocritical, sincere, honest, and authentic. And I'm convinced that's what God wants from us too, are you? See, the world gets pretty tired, says John Ortberg, of people who have Christian bumper stickers on their cars, Christian fish signs on their trunks, Christian books on their shelves, Christian stations on their radios, Christian jewelry around their necks, Christian videos for their kids, and Christian magazines for their coffee tables, but don't actually have the life of Jesus in their bones or the love of Jesus in their hearts. So today... We're going to embark on a huge reality check as outlined by Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, because reality, folks, is always our friend. Amen? Say that again. Say that with me. Reality is always our friend. Welcome to Authentic Christianity 101. Think of this section of Scripture as an ever-expanding circle. The influence of an authentic, real Christ-following life is like the ripples emanating from the point at which a, a rock is dropped into a lake. It constantly expands outward, touching more and more people as it flows from the center of the impact. Okay, track with me now with that image in your mind and read the verses as I read the verses and outline them. First of all, it, be, it begins personally, the inner circle, personally with individual authenticity. Verse 9, chapter 12 of Romans, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And then it moves outward another circle, encompassing others in our relational activity with those within the family of faith, beginning in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. Still moving one more circle outward, it reaches compassionately toward those who are outside the church, beginning in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation." And then finally, the outer circle, the one that reaches way out to the other shore, it flows evangelically to those, even those who actively oppose you and I, you and me. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. 
If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see how that moves that way, that passage of Scripture? And we're going to look at every verse. Not today, over the next few weeks. (laughs) However, let me remind you, as I remind myself, the buck always starts and stops with me as an individual Christian and follower of Jesus. It starts and stops right here. And so the first thing we need to address here is that being an authentic follower of Christ means, as verse 9 says, abounding in love. Look at verse 9 again. Let love be without hypocrisy. Today's world is a world in which everything under the sun is seemingly artificial. Is that right? I mean, technology has made it so you can't almost tell the difference between the artificial and the authentic. Like many of you, my wife and I have an artificial Christmas tree. Why did we buy it? I'll tell you why we bought it. Because it cost us less than the real thing, and it was a lot more convenient. It's all pre-lit. I don't have to string the lights anymore. What a pain. because it cost less and it was a lot more convenient. Unfortunately, you know, those are some of the same reasons people don't live the real Christian life and have opted instead for an artificial imitation. You know why? Because it costs us a whole lot less to do that and it's a whole lot more convenient for us, isn't it? Can you define the real Christian life? We all must look inside of ourselves and ask the painful question, is my Christian walk capable of being believed by those who are around me? And we don't really want to answer that question, do we? Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, let it be real, let it be true. Paul's talking about the kind of love here that is rich and has substance in the truth. This is God's kind of love. And the word Paul Paul uses here is well-known in Christian circles. It's the New Testament writers actually made this word famous. It's the word, say it, agape. You've heard of it, right? Most often described as unconditional love. It's the kind of love God has for us, even in our sinful condition. In matter of fact, it is the definitive description of God. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, it says, John says, God is love, right? And he dwells in every Christ follower. Romans 5, 5 says that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's agape, that word for love. Therefore, the chief characteristic of God should be the chief characteristic of every Christian, correct? Follow suit. If God lives in us, and that's God's chief characteristic, it ought to be ours as well. Question is, is it? Is it mine? Is it yours? 
To describe agape as unconditional love is pretty accurate. But I once discovered another phrase that to me describes it even more simply and precisely than that. It's the phrase unprovoked love. Unprovoked love. I think it is the best description of agape that I have heard. Arthur Mark Buchanan, according to him, it is love for no reason, love beyond reason. But it's not just something that happens on a whim. It just doesn't just happen. It's a choice we have to make. And we choose to operate in it because this is how God is in us. Amen? And as Christians, our heart is where he lives. Being authentically like Christ means abounding in agape love, the kind of love that reasons and has a deep conviction that every person in the world is worthy of our love because the God who lives inside of us loves them without provocation. Following me on this? Godlike love is authentic and without hypocrisy. Now, the word hypocrisy that Paul uses here was used by the ancient Greeks in reference to actors in a theater. The Greek theater didn't have backgrounds or scenery or costumes. Actors carried masks around designed to show different kinds of facial expressions. They walked around the stage holding their masks and occasionally placed them in front of their faces. When Paul wrote, let love be without hypocrisy, the readers knew exactly what he was talking about and what he meant. He meant that love must be without play acting, without masks. It must be absolutely honest. In other words, as a church, our love is not to be theater. Let me say that again. As a church, our love is not to be theater. It is to be real life. Now, many of you know I love movies, and I'm enthralled with a combination of, of all those things that go into a great movie, photography, stunning artistry, imagery, well-written script, engaging soundtrack, creative storyline, super directing, and fantastic editing. Someone once said that they don't so much watch a good movie as live a good movie, right? And that's me. I can relate to that. I get involved in movies that I watch, especially those that teach good, transferable life lessons. I resonate deeply with films that capture the essence of truth. Now, although I would not endorse the entire movie, and I have to be careful whenever I do this, but Forrest Gump has to be one of the most creative, emotionally stirring, truth-teaching movies about life and love. It has a lot to say about character and commitment as well. There's nothing Christian about it necessarily, but good and bad, it shows us life. Truthfully, life is like a box of chocolates, right? You never know what you're going to get. Not every moment is sweet and full of cream. But the events of our lives are not just random occurrences either. We share in the responsibility, don't we, of how things play out. Which brings me to the next great line from the film, stupid is as stupid does. 
You've heard me say this before, but as someone said, it's not going, it's not got nothing to do with your IQ, does it? But everything to do with your discernment and your decision-making ability and your propensity for promise keeping. Forrest Gump's one of those movies that makes you think deeply about life and its choices and our choices. And it makes me think about integrity and character and commitment and innocence lost. That movie convicts me. You know why? Because unlike the main character, I don't always keep my word no matter what. Do you? I don't always love the people around me in an unconditional way. Do you? I don't always show respect for everyone, no matter their color, race, rank, intelligence, or ignorance. Do you? I'm not always willing to sacrifice myself for another person's well-being. And that is convicting to the core, isn't it? While Forrest Gump's life is not even close to the standard which Christ calls me to live, it shows me I have a lot to learn about the real deal. But there's another line in the movie that pierces me through every time I've heard it and each time I've seen the expression on Tom Hanks' face as he delivers it. You know the line, I'm sure when I say it, you'll recognize it immediately, but feeling rejected and betrayed by his lifelong girl, Ginny, Forrest laments, and he says these words at one point, I may not be a smart man, Ginny, Right? But I know what love is. Remember that line? I know what love is. Now, that to me is precisely what the world around me says when I try to pass off some thin veneer of emotional sludge on someone in place of the Christ induced agape that should characterize my faith. I may not be a smart man, Russ, but I know what love is. See, the world wants to know what real love is. They have seen it play-acted for so long, they're afraid to touch it and test it for authenticity. There's only one place that the world will ever find that kind of love in Christ and through us, his followers. That's why Peter wrote so forcefully to the church in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. He says, now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again not of perishable seed, but if of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. Love one another deeply from the heart. Paul says, first and foremost, before anything else in this passage of Scripture can be accomplished, any of the rest of this section of Scripture can be accomplished, we must let love be without hypocrisy. Let it be real. That's why he starts with that phrase. Is your love the real thing? Have you showed anyone in the world that kind of love this week, this past week? Will you this coming week? See, there are people here this morning that want to know what real love is. 
No doubt in my mind. They want you to show them what it is and me. And if the church won't show them, who in the world will? Being an authentic follower of Christ means abounding in real love. And as Forrest Gump would say, that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Number two, Paul says being an authentic Christ follower means abhorring what is evil. Look at verse 9 again, the second part. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. How many times have you heard this statement, I had to choose the lesser of two evils? That's the spirit of the age, isn't it? Especially during an election year. That's what we say. I had to choose the lesser of two evils. Everyone believes that good is too idealistic. These are hard days, folks, that we live in. Amen? These are hard days, and so we're content to choose the lesser of two evils. Spurgeon once said, of two evils, choose neither. We need to get our compass back. Evil should be hated with a passion. Let me say that again. Evil should be hated with a passion, not tolerated with a patience. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. Real Christians, he says, hate evil. Why? Because God hates evil. A Christian's credibility is lynched when evil is condoned. Paul uses a very, very strong word here in this text. It expresses an intense loathing and a bitter hatred of the things that God hates, enough to shrink away and turn away from them. Abhor what is evil, Paul says. Psalm 97, verse 10 says this, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. And Proverbs 8, 13 says, The fear of the Lord is what? Ah, beginning of wisdom. No, the fear of the Lord is also to hate evil, according to Proverbs 8, 13. But do we truly hate it? Do we hate sin? Evil and sin are words that our society has tried its best to retire from the English language. Dr. Carl Menninger, the founder of American Psychiatry, issued a challenge to our modern frame of mind in his book, Whatever Became of Sin. When he wrote these words, he said, Is no, lo- is no one any longer guilty of anything? Guilty, perhaps, of a sin that could be repented and repaired or atoned for? Anxiety and depression we all acknowledge, and even vague guilt feelings, but no one committed, has no one committed any sins? Where, indeed, he asked, did sin go? What became of it? Many Christians are afraid to even use the term hate. Hate is a Christian virtue. Did you know that? Did you know that hate could be a Christian virtue? We need to know what to hate. Jesus knew. He hated hypocrisy. He hated masks. He hated lawlessness. He hated sin. And he hates what it does to the creation that he loves. He lamented the effects of sin upon people because he knew that people weren't the real enemy. They were victims of the enemy. 
And that's how he could authentically love Judas, right, who betrayed him. That's how he could authentically and sincerely love me and you. We need to learn to hate what God hates. And Scripture is clear on what God hates. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, I outline it pretty clearly. Proverbs 6, verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. And a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. That's just one list. Haughty eyes or the proud look. God hates the sin of pride, and so must we. And the first place we must hate it is not in somebody else, but in ourselves. Number two, he says... Proverbs says he, he hates a lying tongue. People look at me in the counseling office and they say, Russ, you don't really think I'd lie to you, do you? And I'd like to respond this way. I'd like to say, oh, friend, no, the thought of that never crossed my mind. <laughs> Not once. That's what I'd like to say. But the truth of the matter is, do I think you lie to me? Of course I do. You know Why? Because I lie, your spouse lies, your parents lie, your boss lies. In some form or another, at some time or other, everyone lies. How are you feeling? And you say, fine, even though you're not. How was my singing, a friend asks you after their concert. (laughs) Great, you say, I really enjoyed it. But did you really? Is that what you were thinking inside of your head while it was going on? And by the way, is there ever a good answer to the question, does this dress make me look fat? (laughs) You see, everyone I have ever known in my life has lied. The most famous story about lying in American history is the story of George Washington cutting down the cherry tree. His father asked him who did it. George supposedly said, Father, I cannot tell a lie. I cut down the tree. Remember that story, right? You learned that in school. But the story of Washington and the cherry tree, a tale which still lingers through probably every grammar school in the United States, was invented by a preacher named Mason Locke Weems in a biography of Washington published directly after his death. He made the story up. The most famous story about not lying in American history is a lie. Anybody who says he or she never lies is lying. So I tell people, mostly I think you'll tell me the truth, but absolutely I think you'd lie to me. John Ortberg writes, politicians spin their promises. Telemarketers try to scam the elderly. White-collar workers commit a variety of crimes. Job seekers pad their resumes. Repair shops pad their bills. Students steal essays from the internet for school. Spouses lie to each other about money or fidelity. Teenagers lie to their parents about where they've been. Parents break promises that they make to their teenagers. People do these things even though they know what the scriptures say. 
Scripture says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. The Lord abhors dishonest scales, the Scripture says, but an accurate weight is his delight. We use the term white lies as if it's acceptable and approved, but God hates a lying tongue in any capacity because you know why? Because half a truth is still a whole lie. Proverbs says God hates lying, the lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. I guess that covers abortion pretty well. What do you think God thinks about that? Four, a heart that devises wicked plans. Five, feet that run rapidly to evil. Six, a false witness. Here we are, are lying again. And seven, one who spreads strife among brothers. Do you think that the church could use a refresher on this one? You see, Christ prayed for oneness, not division. There has never been more division among mankind than in this age. Families, marriages, friendships, churches have all been splintered by people who can't get along. God abhors that. It destroys the credibility of real Christianity, doesn't it? And now we've got churches being split over their views on, on something that should be a no-brainer, sin. We shouldn't be in agreement on that, and yet church is being split over it. God abhors that kind of stuff. An unbelieving first-century Greek writer, Lucian, somewhere around A.D. 120, reacted this way to early Christianity. He said, and I quote, it is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus, has put it into their heads that they are brethren. The psalmist wrote, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. See, God hates division. He is the most unified being in the universe. Division is not the byproduct of a heart filled with the Spirit of God. Rather, it is the result of a life lived exclusively for selfish desires. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty strong language, don't you, don't you think? It says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's no surprise then that another thing that God hates is divorce. The willful ripping apart of one flesh relationships is referred to by God in Malachi as treachery and cruelty, not nice terms. It's cruel, says the New Living Translation. These aren't the only things that God hates. He hates religious pretense. He abhors it when people go through the pseudo-spiritual motions of worship with no inner reality. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. And by the way, he's not talking to Sodom. He's talking to Israel, and he's referring to them as Sodom because they were evil. 
as Sodom was. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling in my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon's festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me, and I'm wary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands are covered with blood. He's telling that to Israel. What do you think he's going to say to America? He follows it up with this. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead. For the widows. One writer has pointed out that our only security against sin is to be shocked by it. But the question is, are we, are we shocked by it? See, it's easy to not be shocked by anything anymore because we have lived so long with it that we've become accustomed to it. We are living, my friends, let me say this, and I don't care what the repercussions may be. We are living in the days of Romans chapter 1. We are. Verse 28 of Romans 1. You tell me if this doesn't describe today. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. We're living in these days. An old preacher by the name of Joseph Parker said, here's the explanation of backsliding, apostasy. Men do not abhor that which is evil. Their passion does not flame. Well, for some people, it does flame, right? I can tell you right now, the day that I saw the White House lit up with rainbow colors in support of same-sex marriage, my passion flamed. Why? Because it was Romans 1 coming to life. It is not bad enough that people do these things, but when the highest place in the land gives hearty approval to those who practice them, we're in a bad place, my friends. And you've heard it. I just heard a message by John MacArthur this week. He had a lot of good things to say in there. And he was pretty bold, pretty bold. And the question that it kept bringing up in my mind is how much evil will we tolerate in our lives? Do we hate it as much as God hates it? 
One of the key characteristics of a person who does not fear God, according to Psalm 36, verses 3 and 4, is that, here I quote Psalm 36, he has ceased to be wise and to do good, and he does not despise evil. Instead, we should want it to be said of us as it was said about Job in the opening verse of the book about Job that he feared God and he stayed away from evil. That's what it says, verse 1 of Job. Someone has said when we encounter sin in our lives, we can react to it in four ways. We can dismiss it, we can deny it, we can distort it, or we can deal with it. Paul says deal honestly with it and decisively with it. Hate it, confess it, repent of it, stay away from it. And by the way, there's one more thing. Please warn others about it. Warn others about it. Remember that Jesus Christ paid a very heavy price because of it. How can God heal, says Max Lucado, what we deny? How can God touch what we cover up? How can we have communion while we keep secrets? How can God grant us pardon when we won't admit our guilt? You see, we're not loving people when we encourage them in their sin. We're not. When we fail to tell them of God's judgment upon sin, when we make laws that support them in it and compromise our stance on it so that the church doesn't lose its tax-exempt status... That's not compassionate, that's not loving, that's hypocrisy. Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. Yes, love them, love people, be compassionate toward people, but be truthful with them. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. You see, the Holy Spirit does not shrink back from getting really personal with us, does he? He does it because the credibility of our faith hinges on whether or not we're going to be authentic, whether we're going to be real. Being authentic means abounding in love, abhorring what is evil, and finally, he says, cling to what is good. Being an authentic Christ follower means adhering to what is good. And we're about done. It's here's where the lion's share of our credibility is either developed or destroyed. We may sit idly in our seats and hate all that's evil. But if that's where we end... Guess how we're perceived? We tend to become a group of self-righteous, I'm okay, but you're not hypocrites. Authentic Christianity goes well beyond hating evil. It becomes permanently wed to everything that's good. That's what Paul says. This is what I refer to here in this verse as superglue spirituality. Why is it that skin is the only thing that will not come apart when it's superglued together? <laughs> Everything else falls apart, but your skin won't. And the word cling here means exactly that. It means to join firmly or glue and cement together. In other words, Paul is saying superglue yourself to good. Superglue yourself to good. Don't let anything pull you away from it. The process starts in your thought life. All of us struggle with gaining control of that. It takes lots and lots of practice and lots and lots of discipline and hard work to put our minds on a leash. But Paul exhorts us to do it anyway. Philippians 4.8, says, In conclusion, my friends, fill your mind with those things that are good and that deserve praise. 
things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and honorable. Now, to be sure, all of us fall way far short of hating evil and gluing ourselves to good. And I mean all of us. Paul even did. He struggled with this as much, if not more, than we do. In Romans 7, 15, he says, what I don't understand about myself is that I I decide one way, but then I act a different way, doing things I absolutely despise. I can feel his pain, can't you? We all have sins we engage in periodically that we hate but can't seem to get control over. Listen, you're not alone in this. I go through it. The person sitting next to you struggles with it. Paul was torn up by the struggle. But the encouragement here is that you realize that it's sin and you can't stand it happening in you, right? The trouble comes when you stop hating it and you start justifying it and become indifferent to it. If you're real, if you're honest with yourself and all of us, you know it's a lifelong battle. And in your frustration, like Paul did, you scream out in heartfelt words of repentance and confession, who will set me free from the body of this death? Isn't that the real question? And we know who will, right? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are set free, and we can get on that road to sin-free living. We don't have the power. We have to succumb to the power of sin in our lives anymore. God gives us a way of escape. And if we constantly choose the Holy Spirit and choose that way of escape, virtually, you know, sin will be done away with. Jesus did away with the guilt of sin, but we struggle with it. Because that old man just still keeps coming back, doesn't he? But we need to walk in the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh, amen? We know who does that. Jesus Christ does it through us, and we're set free. Authentic Christ followers need not put on a front as if they've arrived, because we all know nobody has. Not yet, but someday. And the key today is to admit your sin Yield yourself to Christ, set your desire on following the Holy Spirit, and continue putting one foot in front of the other, always looking toward Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Even non-Christians realize that nobody's perfect, but they can spot a poser a mile away. In the final segments of that famous classic film, now the movie, A small girl and her cronies stand trembling before a great and ominous figure extolling the virtues of his magnificent authority. But it's all smoke and mirrors because suddenly a small dog pulls back the curtain revealing the real Wizard of Oz. And as we watch him fumble to get his his composure and somehow try to cover himself up and close the curtain behind him, somehow this guy becomes a little bit more real to us, doesn't he? A little more pathetic maybe, but nevertheless real. And we find that we can better relate to him now because we can picture ourselves in his shoes, embarrassed by his weakness, unable to deny, dismiss, or escape the truth that has been revealed. He has only one real choice, doesn't he? He can lie, which will get him nowhere, Or he can come clean. 
to embrace his flawed humanity and seek grace and mercy of Christ so that he may be forgiven. That's what we need to do, right? My friends, the world has no use for Christians who incessantly cry, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. They don't have any use for that. They've grown tired of religious posing. We embarrass ourselves when we try to maintain a wizard image when they are looking squarely at a man or a woman behind a dark curtain. No, friends, I'll say it one more time. Your credibility as a Christian will not be destroyed by transparency, only by hypocrisy. So submit yourself to the power of Jesus Christ. Confess your sin, repent of it, and embrace his lordship so that invite him in to work out that stuff. And then humbly go and give them Jesus because they need him every bit as much as we do. In fact, even more. Amen?